Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Ukraine's relationship with Russia is complicated, from an undeclared war in eastern Ukraine that has killed thousands to meddling in presidential elections. There have also been cyber attacks by Russian hackers who've wreaked havoc on Ukraine's infrastructure, including its electric grid. Now, coming up, a Yale Greenberg World Fellow from Ukraine will join us to talk about the two countries. Tara Shevchenko is also founder and executive director of the Ukrainian Center for Democracy and Rule of Law. We'll hear from him later. Now, here in the U.S., the federal investigation continues on whether there was collusion between Russia and the Trump campaign. Meanwhile, 21 states, including Connecticut, were told by Homeland Security officials that Russian hackers attempted to break into their election systems. We'll ask Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill about that and about next year's midterm elections, what systems are in place to keep our votes safe in 2018. First, we wanted to hear more about a case before the U.S. Supreme Court that could dramatically change politics in America. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us right now on the phone is Galen Druk, reporter and producer with 538. Galen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So today we're talking about partisan gerrymandering. Tell us about that term. So partisan gerrymandering is essentially when one party draws district maps specifically designed to favor their own party over the other party. Because essentially you can draw uh, districts by partisanship, voter registration, past voting history, that you have a pretty good idea of how those districts will end up voting in future elections. And in this specific case, we're talking about Wisconsin state legislative maps. Now, why is this before the U.S. Supreme Court? So a group of a dozen Wisconsin Democrats brought a case before federal court in Wisconsin arguing that in 2011, when Republicans in the state controlled the Assembly, the Senate, and the governor's mansion, they drew maps that were specifically designed to disadvantage Democrats. And what ended up happening in 2012 is that Republicans won the minority of the votes uh, in the Assembly elections, but won Uh, a strong majority of the representation in the state assembly. And so those dozen Democrats joined with a group of attorneys, filed their lawsuit. They won in district court. And that was, uh, you know, prehistoric in and of itself, because we've generally thought of partisan gerrymandering as, okay, you know, you can consider partisanship to some extent when you're drawing maps. Uh, but there has never been a line drawn, really, for when it goes too far. And so after that case, the state of Wisconsin appealed, and that's how it ended up at the Supreme Court. Now, when we talk about gerrymandering specifically, there are actually two strategies known as cracking and packing. Can you break those down for us, Galen? Yeah. So packing is essentially concentrating one party's voters at uh, a high percentage into a small number of districts, attempting to limit the number of districts in which voters from that party can elect their candidates of choice. 
cracking is the reverse. It's essentially diluting voters across a large number of districts so that they never have the opportunity to elect their candidate of choice in any of those districts. And usually packing and cracking are done in tandem, right? You pack voters uh, where they are concentrated naturally into a small number of districts and then try to uh, disperse them through a large number of districts in other parts of the state. And essentially by doing both at the same time, you can usually pretty successfully uh, limit the amount of representation one party can get. Now, this isn't the first time gerrymandering has come up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Tell us why this case is different and how the outcome might also be different. The reason this case is different, I mean, it's similar in some regards, but the reason it's kind of a blockbuster case goes back to 2004. Essentially, in the Veith case in 2004, Anthony Kennedy said that he would consider ruling partisan gerrymandering to be unconstitutional if there was a clear boundary, if there was a manageable standard for when partisan gerrymandering goes too far. And he said in that case that uh, there wasn't a clear manageable standard. And essentially that set reformers and their attorneys off on a mission to find a workable, manageable, precise standard that they could present to the court to sway Anthony Kennedy, because it's likely that the block of four liberals on the court will rule that partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional. So this case, in many ways, is catered towards answering Justice Kennedy's question. And in this case, they think, they hope that they found it. We're talking with Galen Druk, reporter and producer at 538, about one of the significant cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, they heard arguments earlier this week, and that's whether uh, partisan gerrymandering can be so extreme that it is unconstitutional. It's based on a, a case in Wisconsin in 2011. Now, when, we, when they heard arguments uh, earlier this week, Galen, talk about some of the questions that Justice Kennedy and others had uh, for the attorneys. Kennedy was the first justice to speak during the state of Wisconsin's oral arguments. And he dove sort of right back into the conversation that he started in 2004. In 2004, in his concurring opinion, he wrote that perhaps the best challenge to partisan gerrymandering is based on a violation of the First Amendment. Previously, these kinds of cases have been brought based on the 14th Amendment, which is equal protection. The First Amendment protects freedom of speech, association, so that would cover, you know, membership of a political party. And he sort of dove right into that and asked the state of Wisconsin's uh, attorney, whether it could be considered a violation of of the First Amendment. His other questions also picked up where his 2004 opinion left off, but perhaps most notably, he did not speak at all during the Wisconsin Democrats' oral arguments. And we, we did a little, we compiled a little data here at 538, and as a general rule, silence is a good it signifies uh, something good. Uh, I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule, but usually uh, justices will pepper attorneys that whose arguments they disagree with, with a lot of questions, and sort of show their colors to the rest of the justices on the court and try to convince them of seeing the case the way they see it.
Now, what are some of the questions that the conservative bloc had, including Chief Justice Roberts, about um, some of the concerns he has about this particular case and what it would mean for cases around the country coming through again? So the big concern of conservatives on the court is that I mean, the the sort of legalese way of saying this is that this case is not justiciable, meaning that it's not the role of the courts to decide how districts should be drawn on a state level, because this is something that has been legally mandated in our legal system to state legislatures going back to, you know, the founding of the republic. And essentially, I mean, Justice Roberts is very skeptical. I think he called their standard sociological gobbledygook. Uh, because the fear is that if the Supreme Court wades into the political fray, in this case, it will cause a flood of later cases, and the Supreme Court will end up being the kind of arbiter of how districts are drawn all over the country. I wanted to bring into the conversation in studio with me is Connecticut Secretary of the State, Denise Merrill. Uh, Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. So in terms of gerrymandering and how maps are put together, give our listeners a little idea of redistricting recently in Connecticut and how it's done based on versus what has happened in Wisconsin. Uh, Well, fortunately, uh, in Connecticut, we do have a bipartisan commission. So both parties will always be part of the drawing of districts. Uh, Nonetheless, Uh, We do have one problem, which is that the people in the room drawing those districts are from those districts. So it tends to be an incumbent protection sort of thing. They sit in a room and try to draw them up. Uh, they they have gone to court on occasion, uh, and and other times we appoint. So it's a panel of eight people, and then um, a third party is appointed if they can't come to agreement, which is frequently the case. And then if those if that still can't break the tie, then it can go to court. We have had instances of packing, as we were just discussing, where uh, one year and it was not 2011; it was in the 1990, I believe. Uh, redrawing uh, where there was an attempt to have uh, a city full of Democrats moved into a very Democratic, already Democratic congressional district. So these things do go on and the court did decide. Um, But obviously it's not ideal if the uh, groups can't come together. But I think it is a good thing that we have a bipartisan commission. I imagine you're watching uh, the outcome of this uh, closely. Um, If the U.S. Supreme Court were to rule that partisan gerrymandering uh, is unconstitutional, do you anticipate a lot of these suits being raised, as Galen mentioned? Um, Yes, probably. Uh, uh, You know, because the the big question is, and it's interesting that it's coming up now, is is party affiliation the same as, let's say, racial gerrymandering? I mean, and this is sort of the question before the court. And when is too much, you know, when is too much? When is it not, is it enough to make a case? And so um, I don't know if anything would change in Connecticut because, of course, it would have to be voted on by the legislature and they're the ones drawing the district lines right now. So that would be a pretty tough sell. Uh, but I think I think you're going to see more of this attempt to have more bipartisanship if the court does go that way. I'll go back to Galen Druk again, a reporter and producer for 538. Uh, so they heard arguments. When can we expect to hear a decision? And what would happen if, again, they were to rule that partisan gerrymandering is so extreme that it is unconstitutional? We can expect to hear sometime between January and June of next year. And in terms of when on that spectrum the decision will come down, we don't know. I've heard rumblings that if the court is going to rule in favor of the Wisconsin Democrats saying that 
partisan gerrymandering can be considered unconstitutional, it's likely the ruling would come down earlier in the year rather than later because it could have some bearing on how districts are drawn ahead of the 2018 midterms. Now, if the Supreme Court does rule that partisan gerrymandering can be considered unconstitutional, of course we will see many more lawsuits following the mold of this case, essentially using the legal standard that has been set up in this case to argue that partisan gerrymandering can be considered unconstitutional. Now, maybe that will sort of help solidify what state legislatures or commissions should and shouldn't be doing. Essentially, there will be more legal precedent the more cases that come before the court. You know, the pessimistic view is that it's impossible to decide what exactly is fair. And we see these kinds of cases litigated long into the future because, you know, there's some argument that gerrymandering is in the eye of the beholder. And some people are always going to be unhappy with the end result. Um, As we just heard, you know, even when a bipartisan commission draws the maps, there will be accusations of gerrymandering. And sometimes those even go to court. Galen Drugs, a reporter for 538 and producer of a series about gerrymandering this fall, the first episode of which is available on the 538 Politics podcast. We'll tweet out a link at where we live. Galen, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Wesley. Have a great day. Coming up, how are local election officials keeping your voting information safe? In light of news, Russian hackers targeted 21 states, including Connecticut. Again, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill is here. She'll walk us through this, and we'll talk about future elections in this age of increasing cyber attacks. You can join the conversation, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Ukraine knows firsthand how Russian interference can wreak havoc on the country's security, its elections, even its infrastructure. Infrastructure, rather. We'll hear from a Ukrainian activist on his country's complicated with relationship with Russia. That's coming up later. Now, here in the U.S., Russian meddling in the 2016 election has been unnerving to some Americans. And there's the ongoing investigation into whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. Now, it was 10 months after the general election when local officials in 20 states, including Connecticut, finally got confirmation from federal officials that hackers, Russians, believed to be Russians, attempted to access voter information. For more on that, again, Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill is in studio with me. And talk us through um, the timeline of events of when you were first notified that there may have been some attempt by hackers to access election systems. And what does that mean exactly? Sure. Um, And we have our own complicated relationship with Russia, I would submit. (laughs) Um, Yes, it it was a long time coming. Uh, As of July, around July last year, before the election, um, news was in the press about uh, Arizona and Illinois, the state's uh, systems. And when I say systems, I mean their voter registration list, not their tallying system for votes. I want to be very clear about that. Their voter registration lists had been attempted to be entered. And I think in one case, actually, they did get through the firewall and didn't do anything, apparently, or anything anyone can find. But um, it was announced in the press. It was never uh, really put out there to the states who are in charge of elections. Uh, So then we didn't hear anything for a long time. 
And then just before the election, um, the Department of Homeland Security said they were going to declare elections what they call critical infrastructure, which means it would be a new sector that they would oversee for critical infrastructure of the country, which essentially means it's sort of like the power grid, for example, or certain systems that they monitor in case there's foreign destruction, similarly to what you're hearing about Ukraine. So um, this was a surprise. We didn't really know why it was happening or what the purpose was, and it continued past the election. So then after the election, um, we started hearing, really through a congressional hearing, where DHS testified and said that 21 states had been, they didn't use the word hacked, had been uh, targeted by uh, Russian IP addresses, essentially. And uh, this caused great consternation among those of us who thought we should have known about this or at least could do something in the future, at least to be told in some regular way. I think the problem we're having here is that there are two different cultures. Election culture is very open and transparent. We want the public to know exactly how it works. We have openings of machines. We have lots of what they call redundancy in the system. We have paper lists. We have electronic lists. So, and then meanwhile, DHS and the FBI and other agencies uh, have a culture of, you know, protecting information. It's all secret. It's classified and so forth. And so I think we had a bit of a culture clash in the sense that we couldn't know. And we kept asking, who are the 21 states? And they'd say, well, we can't tell you. And so that got to be very frustrating. And then finally, real, really recently, two weeks ago, uh, they let out a list of the states and told us and on a call which states had been there had been an attempt to get in. Now, let me be clear. It looks like no states were actually breached, but that's still a little unclear as, as well. But Connecticut was not. That's the good news for us. <laughs> when we talk about hackers uh, targeting Connecticut, so what were they trying to get? They were trying to get into online voter registration lists? Or tell, us, tell, tell us more about that. That's the only thing that's online. Uh, in our election system. Uh, fortunately for us, and I'm beginning to feel very good about being in Connecticut because we have a lot of the best practices. In other words, we have paper ballots, so we have lots of backup systems. We also have paper voter registration lists that are printed out regularly. So it's still unclear exactly what this attempt was all about. Uh, we have firewalls like everybody does on their own home computers, and I, I guess I could liken it to that. And these are what they call pings which means there are attempts to get through the firewalls at all times. Lots of times, we get thousands of them a day, by the way, lots of times there are probably people mining data, trying to get personal information for commercial purposes, whatever. Um, we're still not clear what it was all about. There was no attempt anywhere to actually alter data that anyone knows about. So it's still a puzzle. It may fit in with the narrative that says that Russians are interested in just kind of creating confusion. And that's very, very effective, frankly, at this point in our history. People are only too willing to believe that there's some sort of conspiracy out there to meddle in American elections in whatever way. Uh, the biggest danger is that people fear this and stay home and don't vote and feel that their vote is in jeopardy. If these hackers were able to get into Connecticut's website and access these voter registration lists, could they delete that information, then cause chaos at these local polling sites when people show up to vote, their name isn't there? Possibly. On the other hand, 
in the in the polling places there are paper lists. So immediately what would happen if there was a spate of people coming in saying, I should be on this list, my name has been eliminated, and the person says, well, it's not here, that would be immediately apparent. And so that could be fixed, but it would create a certain amount of chaos and confusion. I mean, it's hard enough on election day, you know, especially in presidential elections where you have thousands of people coming to vote. So again, I think the biggest danger is the chaos that could be created by either adding or deleting names. There was a time, and you remember this well, when people were um, critical of this uh, relying on paper ballots. Some states <laughs> use, uh, you know, the uh, Florida, for instance. Yes. I mean, so every state is con- in control of their elections and they have different processes. But as someone who's co-chair of the National Association of <laughs> Secretaries of State Election Cybersecurity Task Force, how do you get all of the states on board to make sure that each of their systems are in fact intact and are not uh, not um, threatened around elections. Well, there are federal regulations. They're fairly loose, uh, and it it all happened really uh, as a result of the 2000 hanging Chad election. Uh, after that, a significant amount of funding was provided to the states to buy new machines because it was felt we needed to move on from the hanging Chads, <laughs> which most of us did. Uh, And there was a great debate at the time in Connecticut uh, right around 2003 about which kinds to do. Uh, Citizens got involved, and I think it's a fortunate thing because we did end up with paper ballots and basically scanning machines. Uh, I think you will see some recommendations coming out of uh, not only our task force but other groups that are looking at this that the – uh, touch screens that, as you refer to, some states still use will probably be phased out at the very least. Um, the states that use them still defend them. Um, maybe that has to do with how much it would cost to replace them. It's a it's very costly, but um, probably that'll be the recommendation. Would be my guess. Uh, we had talked about how local officials like yourself did not hear from federal officials about this confirmation that's, that someone was targeting Connecticut's election system until uh, last month. So what can be changed? We hear that there's now a coalition between Department of Homeland Security and election officials, including um, Connecticut, about how to work better together in the future, including security clearances. Is that something that you would be receiving? That's right. I'm getting a security clearance, much to my amazement. Uh, it's Yes, we're doing much better. It took us a long time to make our point. And I think the point was also, I don't think they understood how little cyber is involved with elections and how decentralized it is. I mean, there are literally hundreds of thousands of polling places. None of them are connected to the Internet. None of the machines that tally votes. Some states have differing ways of registering people and so forth. But uh, there's a lot more communication. And I think that's exactly what's needed. And I think we're we're getting there. We're almost on the same page now, and at least we'll be able to find out when something has happened. I mentioned local control of, of elections when uh, the Department of Homeland Security initially wanted to, uh, I guess, designate these as critical infrastructure. There was pushback from local officials. Explain that pushback. And even though that designation has gone through, how are you able to work with that now? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, yes, we, our association, took a stand against the designation of elections as critical infrastructure, not because we don't think it's critical. It is critical, but it was very unclear and still is how far the reach of the federal government would go. For example, would they be able to declare that certain polling places were not secure enough in their view? And would that leave us trying to scramble finding out where that should be? I mean, how far is there... Um, 
authority going to reach under this new designation. And security is not our only concern in elections. Our concern is also the integrity of the election, the faith of the public in the process. And so when you start having a lot of uh, nervousness about you know, are we going to have federal officials monitoring certain polling places? I think that would cause a lot of problems. So until we get clarity on exactly what they have in mind, and fortunately now they are consulting with us, our task force, of which I am the co-chair, will be uh, part of the coordinating council, they call it, for DHS for this process. So hopefully we can get on the same page because it's terribly important. Mm. You mentioned that Americans need to have faith in their elections. Uh, we've got a, a important midterm elections coming up. Do you feel like the damage has been done, even if these hackers have not actually breached these systems? The fact that this, there are these attempts, people are suspicious? I don't think so. I think we've made our point. You know, the, the good news is it didn't work, and I don't think it's going to work. We have firewalls like everyone else, but, you know, I don't think it's helped by the fact that you have the Equifax breach. I mean, people are becoming more aware. We all need to be part of the solution. Even with elections, local officials need to change their passwords appropriately, you know, be on guard themselves. So it's just a new world. But I don't think we're going to see... Any additional problems from what we've already seen? I think we have a lot of processes in place. Like I say, we've got a lot of paper still, and maybe that turns out to be a blessing. Denise Merrill is Connecticut's Secretary of the State. We were asking her about uh, attempts by Russian hackers when they targeted uh, 21 states, including Connecticut, uh, in the lead up to uh, the 2016 elections. Now, it almost appears that having paper ballots is a blessing in disguise, not this antiquated system that it once was thought of. I know. Isn't it funny? Yeah. I mean, I was one that kept saying maybe we should have these uh, what they call electronic poll books. A lot of states do have them, which is where you get checked in on a, on a computer. And I still think we could do that. I just think we have to be aware. We can't be just blithely connecting these things to the Internet because the Internet's a dangerous place in lots of ways. So I think we can still manage to be more efficient, which it is. You know, you don't have to type everything in every time. But on the other hand, uh, I think we are now much more cautious going forward. We always have been in Connecticut, and, and I think that's a good thing. The old land of steady habits uh, turns out to be helpful. And there are a number of other states that are like that as well. But, um, you know, the recommendations that are coming forward from all this are certainly things we need to pay attention to. But the good news is I, I really think we're in pretty good shape in Connecticut, honestly. It's the other states we have to worry about. Well, yes, some of them. <laughs> yes. Denise Merrill is Connecticut Secretary of the State. Thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lucy. Coming up, we sit down with a Ukrainian activist who's in Connecticut now as a Yale Greenberg World Fellow. He'll talk about his work and what the U.S. can learn from Ukraine's experience dealing with Russian cyber attacks. Now, do you enjoy the conversations on where we live? Support this show during WNPR's fall membership campaign. Here are my colleagues to tell you how. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We heard earlier from Connecticut Secretary of the State Denise Merrill about an attempt by hackers believed to be Russians who tried to breach the state's election system. Connecticut was one of 21 states targeted. For Ukrainians, Russian interference is nothing new. Russia has meddled in Ukrainian presidential elections for years. Even former President Viktor Yushchenko was poisoned during his 2004 campaign 
although Russia denied involvement. And Russia has fueled an ongoing conflict with separatists in eastern Ukraine since 2014. To date, 10,000 Ukrainians have died in that three-year conflict. Meanwhile, there are Ukrainians working to foster a robust civil society for all of the country's citizens, no matter their political leanings. Taras Shevchenko is founder and executive director of the Ukrainian Center for Democracy and Rule of Law and a current Yale Greenberg World Fellow. He joins us today from the studios at Yale University. Taras, welcome to where we live. Thank you. We understand Ukraine's been independent since the 1990s and has gone through two revolutions in the last two decades. The relationship between Europe and Russia has been at the center of those two political movements. Taras, can you tell us a little bit about those two revolutions in 2004 and 2014? And what was at stake for the Ukrainians in each of them? Well, I, I enjoyed being part of this revolution. One then was called Orange Revolution and another Revolution of Dignity. And both of them, they were actually for the people that found themselves on the street to protest against government, against, in first case, it was in the eve of elections, and people decided that it was absolutely unjust decision and the fake elections. They protest until they had actually an extra chance to vote and to vote for the president they were wishing to have. And in the second case, it was about European choice of Ukraine because most of Ukrainians didn't want to go with the Russia for the next Soviet Union, as Russia was willing to have. Instead, they really wanted to be a part of the Europe. And uh, that actually brought people on the street, and that ended, unfortunately, with violent pro- protests as well. And we had change of the government, and uh, m- many different uh, things were happening afterwards, unfortunately, with violence, with war, and with losing parts of the territory of Ukraine. Tell us about that complicated relationship between Ukraine and Russia. Why is Russia so intent to remain a strong influence in your country, despite its independence for a few decades now? Well, I think Russia never accepted that uh, Ukrainian independence. And many scholars, many American professors, they were also saying, like, Russia will not be empire without Ukraine. And there are many historical parallels because Rus was the country, ancient country in 10th century, with the capital in Kiev. And like we link our history to Rus, but Russia is doing the same. They were claiming the history coming from from the same place, from, from Kiev. So it's very hard to explain to Russian people what's the history of current Russia with having independent country Ukraine and like two countries claiming the same history. So for them, wishing still to be a strong big empire in the current world, they really need to get rid of Ukraine and they cannot accept that Ukrainian country exists. Democratic Ukraine is the biggest influence, having very big influence on, on Russia, because if Ukraine is democratic, developed and successful country, it's nearly impossible to have Russia as authoritarian, non-democratic, because there are very huge correlations be- between these two countries. And I think it's really in the interest of, of America to have Ukraine as a positive example, as democratic, as developed and successful country in this part of the world because it influenced the whole global system of security. 
Former President Viktor Yanukovych was pro-Russian. And what's interesting about him, when we ask how much Americans know about Ukraine, there's an individual who worked for Yanukovych's campaign who's now in the news here. And that's Paul Manafort, the former campaign manager for President Trump. Can you tell us what Manafort's role was in Ukrainian politics? Uh, Paul Manafort is quite known in Ukraine for the work he's done. Many people believe that it was his advices for the campaign of Yanukovych and his party of region that was structured in a way actually to divide Ukrainian society, to divide Ukrainian country on the basis of pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian issues. Because many politicians were more or less like the same and their agenda were the same. So the campaign that, that was aggressively done was extremely like anti-NATO, anti like Russia, Ukraine, like dividing Ukraine, like maps with, that would divide Ukraine into different sorts of, uh, of people allegedly. And uh, having Russian language issue as the top issue for campaign. And it was not like the natural thing that were like when people ask what are like top priority issues for you, they would name Russian and Ukrainian language issues maybe number 20. But if you make it as a flag for the campaign and if you like try to frighten that like this uh, Ukrainians from the West will, will come and prohibit you to speak Russian language, then people start to be more aggressive. And uh, unfortunately, this aggression was cultivated by for many years. And many people believe that was also part of the job for Manafort. And it was successful in favor of the, of the party of region and in favor of the Yanukovych. Mm. Why is the language situation in Ukraine so complex? And how does that relate to ethnic identity, if at all? Well, it's, it's interesting that it's not, there is not such a big correlation between ethnic identity and language identity. Ukraine did not have its own country for 100 years. At the same time, Russia was raising an issue there is no such ethnicity as, as Ukrainians. And for 100 years, they were prohibiting Ukrainian language. In like in uh, when it was Russian Empire and then Soviet Union, they were discouraging use of Ukrainian language. If you like go to the city, you immediately switch into Russian because otherwise there would be kind of stigma that you are from. If you speak Ukrainian, you're from village. If you go to Soviet army, you start immediately speak Russian language. So for years, for hundred years, it was an issue like to make Ukrainians forget their own language. So many Ukrainians speak Russian language, and it was already like mother tongue. That was very important topic from what Russian expansion started three and a half years ago. They said, we are coming to neighboring country to protect Russian speakers, even though it's not like ethnically Russian. The ethnical Russian uh, population in Ukraine is something like 15%. At the same time, with the language issue, it's nearly nearly 50-50. Though everyone would 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 uh, easily understand and can speak both Russian and Ukrainian. Mm. You know, here in America, uh, many Americans were shocked to learn about Russian interference uh, in the the presidential elections and questions of uh, what. Um, how much they interfered, and that's still being investigated. Uh, also, fake news being circulated on Facebook. Uh, can you talk about how Russian hacking is nothing new in Ukraine and what we can learn from what Ukraine is experiencing? Russia is always interfering with Ukrainian politics and Ukrainian stations, again, using language issues as well and using its uh, own television channels that are broadcast into Ukraine. 
but it was extremely the case before the last revolution, during the revolution, and immediately after. And what we were seeing, well, like we thought, and I used to work as an expert in freedom of speech and in, in, in media issues as a, as, a, as a lawyer, that was enormous campaign to use fake news, to use Russian uh, state television companies like Zvezda that belongs to Ministry of Defense, Russia Today, to disseminate absolutely false news in order to provoke violence. And in this, that was the main tool to start war in Ukraine. Like having picture from Syria and claim this is Ukraine, hundreds of such pictures, especially through social media, through thousands of different channels, enormous efforts. We were like more than sure that international organizations would would take a stand because we saw that this is something new happening in the world when one country can abuse freedom of expression, can use all these masses created like for the democracy, but in fact to promote violence, to promote war and be successful in that. And to my surprise, it wasn't visible by Council of Europe, by OCE, by other governments. And when Ukraine was trying to make some preventive measures or to stop some disseminations, we we said, no, 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 this is freedom of expression, you can do that. And only when democratic countries start suffering and, and seeing that they are affected as well, only at that moment we see that reaction is, is, is different. And I, of course, see that this is quite a big topic now in, now, now in America. This summer, Ukraine deported a, a Russian journalist accused of spreading anti-Ukrainian propaganda. Uh, the government's also barred uh, Spanish journalists uh, for their coverage of, of the conflict uh, in the eastern side of the country and banned several Russian social media networks in the Ukraine. Given the focus of your think tank, how do you think the Ukrainian government should handle the propaganda uh, moving forward? From our perspective, we, of course, protect freedom of expression and freedom of speech. But we also see how important the issue of national security is. And if journalists are used as a, as a mean of a foreign government to interfere with, with, with your country relations, or if they actually are part of the campaign to, to have hatred and to have people killing each other, we don't consider that this is something that is protected by freedom of expression. And as to the issue of, of um, Russian social networks that, that were banned, you can still access these Russian networks if you a little bit engage in some VPN things and, and so on. But in, in generally, that's, that's again a very, very difficult question of the balance between freedom of expression and national security. Imagine if uh, Americans would be using social networks developed by some by Islamic State or by uh, terrorist organizations, and they would be would be using this as a primary social network in the country. Of course, it's raised issues of of national security, and through these social networks, actually, a lot of fake news and propaganda were channeled. So, uh, one month after the decision. The, the social network number one became Facebook, which was already quite popular, but, but was not, not on the top on the list. So I rather support government in these decisions, though we oppose governmental initiatives in many cases. I'm not that much like pro-government person in Ukraine. But in regards with national security, I do support government in these decisions. 
I mentioned earlier that you're the head of Ukrainian Center for Democracy and Rule of Law think tank. I was curious about any challenges your coalition has run into in uh, your attempts to reform Ukrainian civil society and, and why some reforms haven't worked. The most important thing in which we are engaged is reform coalition that was formed during the Revolution of Dignity, and it now unites 80 NGOs, mostly think tanks, that develop policy, develop legislation. And this was unique initiative that unites hundreds of experts that is based on a joint plan for reforms in the country. It cooperates with many members of parliament, its president, with prime minister. We had more than 100 legislation acts that were developed by members of our coalition that are already adopted in parliament. The most successful things, the most successful reforms in what my coalition was engaged is creation of anti-corruption institutions like National Anti-Corruption Bureau that can now arrest minister or former ministry, member of parliament, judges, and that is something that Ukraine never knew. And uh, the second thing that's, that I want to mention is judicial reform that is still underway and we don't have final results, but we are changing completely the Supreme Court of Ukraine. This is happening just these days. Of course, we are not happy with the, with, with the speed of reforms, with execution of these legislation acts that are adopted. And I would say that the, that the major problem still in Ukraine is bringing people to justice, and like we have arrests of people who are accused in corruption, but we nearly don't have judicial decisions. So judicial reform and have an independent judiciary, have an anti-corruption court is priority number one for us now in Ukraine. You're currently a Yale Greenberg World Fellow. What are you hoping to learn over the next few months that you'll take back to Ukraine? It's an amazing opportunity to, to take a break from reform agenda in Ukraine. And uh, I'm taking classes in corruption democracy at Yale Law School, leadership at School of Management. We have a great cohort of people who are other world fellows from different countries and learn from their experience. And second thing is networking. Yale is, of course, a great opportunity to, to get contacts with so many people, professors, students, fellows, and also to, to have comparison. It's really much better perspective when you look at your country being abroad with possibility to compare, with possibility to understand many issues that you just don't see when you're inside the process, when you're inside your country. Taras Shevchenko is founder and executive director of the Ukrainian Center for Democracy and Rule of Law, a current Yale Greenberg World Fellow. He spoke to us today from Yale University Studios. Taras, thank you so much for speaking with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Now, if you appreciate the conversations we have here on Where We Live, it's our fall fundraising campaign. And here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support this radio station. <laughs> 